0: So, Jake, tell me about all the good things that happened in the legislative session that just blessedly came to a conclusion. Because there were some there were some good things, right?
1: Yeah, there are few and far between, but I would say really the one that sticks out is the change that happened in the transportation funding structure. Maine has had a shortfall of, you know, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars for several years now. And finally, we have... Made a change, and basically what it does is it reapportions some money from the general fund to the transportation fund. Basically, uh, we got Representative John Andrews to sponsor a bill for us. It's been it was a bill that's been proposed numerous times in the past, and unfortunately Republicans never really had any sort of leverage to do anything with it. This year, it got a unanimous vote out of the transportation committee. Uh, sorry, out of the tax committee, moved to the transportation committee. They ended up adopting it. As part of their budget. And basically what it does is it just reapportions uh, a segment of transportation-related sales tax items, moves it to the general fund. Um, uh, Sorry, I did that backwards. So
0: basically it's a a dedicated income stream. So every time you buy a truck, the money you spend on that, the tax you pay on that – is now going to go to fill potholes and build bridges. Right,
1: it used to go to the general fund where, you know, government could Anybody could put their hands on it, yeah. Um, And now it's going to the transportation fund. uh, And it's expected not to fully close that gap, um, but it, it closes a good percentage of it. And basically what it means, Steve, is we're not bonding, we're not borrowing hundreds of millions of dollars Every year, every other year, as has been the case in Maine for, you know, going back to forever, basically.
0: Which was which was a um, an appealing proposition when interest rates were at one, two, three percent. Right. But at interest rates today, I don't think there's any appetite, even on the left, for uh, going out to bond some of these things.
1: Yeah, absolutely not. And so, you know, it's a it's a really small change. It's basically the only place where conservatives in the legislature could apply even an ounce of pressure because. Nobody wants road repairs to stop, especially as we were entering the summer months, which is basically the only time you can fix roads in the state of Maine. So, fortunately, they were able to move that through, um, and we now have that new dedicated funding source in perpetuity moving forward. But other than that, Steve, there's not there's not a whole there's a lot there's a a much longer list of bills that were killed that were bad than uh, you know really notable.
0: Well, I mean, some of the best things that can happen in the legislature are uh, bills dying. Frankly. Yeah. Um, but I will say that having uh, put thousands of miles uh, on my vehicles traveling around the state, uh, going up to Allagash to cover a, a voter recount very recently, I can tell you that the roads are horrendous, especially the road from Fort Kent to Allagash. They've got to get somebody in office there who will really pay attention to local issues and try and fix that road because it's
1: awful. It's a dreadful you know, road. Anybody who lives or has traveled here knows just how bad they are. And it's funny that you know it took so long to make a change like this because you think about roads, you think about infrastructure, shipping goods, the supply chain. It's so fundamental to why government exists to make sure that
0: you yeah, know, commerce it's a, it's a is base successful. core competency of government. Right, so
1: why why have we spent so long borrowing money to fix our roads instead of it making a top priority, one of the highest priority spending items? Why are we putting this on the credit card instead well, the of well the, the roads the roads don't card.
0: vote <laughs> and the roads can't uh, give you a campaign contribution
1: right and 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 also you know when you when you when you're the lawmaker who proposes it or you're you're lobbying for or advocating telling voters to support the bond because we want to fix our roads and look at me I fix the roads and it's like. No, you should just do that. That's yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: should, that's, that's, you, you you're should, just, that's just showing up. Right. That's that's not putting it in an all star report. That's a, just showing a up. A
1: campaign to fund our roads. Like no, just fund the fund things. So
0: there were a, a few other things that I think uh, you know conservatives have pointed to, or Republican lawmakers have pointed to as evidence of victories, minor victories uh, during a the session. There was uh, an attempt to increase vehicle inspection fees that was also tied to this bizarre surveillance program yeah. uh, can you tell me a little bit about the origin of that
1: this was really funny um, so the state police have been pushing for this for a really long time they're, they're like you know we're behind the times and we need to, we need to uh, you know make the system electronic and, and, and live in the now basically they've been pushing multiple sessions in a row to make this happen um, and they were on the verge of making it happen really there was a 12 to one vote in committee. The only person opposed was Senator Ben Chipman of Portland, who's my senator, um, and he knows that we hate these things, so it was really funny. I get a call one day from Ben Chipman asking... Who's, to, who's
0: like, far far left, I yeah. think, say, progressive Democrat, if yeah. safe to say.
1: Um, you know, calls me up and says, hey, uh, I know you guys hate this thing, uh, the vote in committee didn't go the way I wanted to, there was a bunch of stuff in committee that happened that um, he didn't expect to ultimately happen, the state police were were, you know, whipping votes really hard for this, and so... You know then the the bill advances. it goes to the to the House and Senate. It passed very narrowly in the House, and then it got just destroyed in the Senate. I think it was thirty to two. And so you know we were telling people to contact their lawmakers. we were we were whipping votes on the floor. and um, basically, there's you know two really notable things that it would have done. It would have made the system electronic. So you bring your car somewhere and you fail for a faulty muffler, we'll say, well, now there's, a, now there's an electronic record of that. So when you try and shop around for services, you bring your car somewhere else, they're going to see that. And, you know, it's different with something like a muffler. Let's talk about tires. Uh, you bring your car to one mechanic. They think your, your tires are good for another year. Another mechanic might say, no, you need to change these tires right now. There's so much human error, human judgment that's part of this system. Well, and mixed
0: mixed incentives, too. I mean, like a VIP, which can provide those tires, might think you need to replace your tires. But a small-town mechanic shop, which isn't going to supply the tires might think your tires are fine
1: right so so you know ultimately going electronic what it means is say bye-bye to shopping around for services well it's surveillance when you
0: hear electronic system think surveillance right because my mind i you you guys immediately went to no more shopping around for your inspection sticker my mind immediately went to so is a is a uh state trooper going to be able to run your license plate right. and see if you have uh, you know outstanding repairs that you haven't made, even if your inspection sticker is valid?
1: Yeah, and that's that's a real question that, uh, it's funny, they put out a floor sheet, the state police did on the day of the vote in the Senate, and they tried to refute a lot of the public claims that we were making, but they didn't directly refute that one, and I think it's really interesting that they didn't. Well, what because... other
0: interest would they have <laughs> in building a massive surveillance system?
1: Right, right, So so the point remains basically that, like, you you know, let's just say in theory it's, what, August 10th or 11th or something. Um, let's say your sticker's good till the end of the month. You bring your car in. You fail for something. They never answered the question of, can you be driving down 95? They plug in your license plate. They see that you failed an inspection two days ago. You're technically driving a defective vehicle and use it as the pretense to, to pull you over. They never answered that question. They refused to directly answer that question. Well, I mean, of course
0: of course just... the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, but the, the more... Uh, I guess a, a concern related to that is for these trial attorneys. You know, if you're if you're driving a heavy-duty truck and you failed inspection, but your sticker's still valid and you get in an accident, is a trial attorney going to be able to go back and say, well, he, obviously he was negligent, he failed the inspection?
1: Yeah. Yeah, There's, I mean, it, it opens up so many cans of worms that it, it's almost hard to, to wrap your head around all of them. But the other big important thing that the bill was going to do is Ultimately, increase the fee to, to to get your car inspected to twenty dollars. Um, and you know, it doesn't sound like that much, but we have been pushing for so many years now to deregulate this system. There are. I mean, only Florida
0: many- Florida doesn't have vehicle inspections. It's not like you know people are just dying all the time because right. of defective vehicles. Right.
1: The, the reality, Steve, is that so few accidents are actually caused by this if you look at what causes motor vehicle accidents it's speeding it's drug and alcohol use it's distracted old driving people. <laughs> old people Boom, people i mean just
0: i, I get them at the the main state police press releases it's usually old people
1: and and um no offense to old people no offense to old people but um you know to think that this program is keeping you safe and, and, and you know, it's preventing accidents. Such a small proportion of accidents are actually caused by defective vehicles. And so if you actually look at the data of states that do and don't have these programs, there is no statistically significant difference related to accidents caused by defective motor vehicles. And the other argument that they make, Steve, is basically we need these programs because it rains and it snows and we use salt on the roads and all this stuff and it's like okay, so how does Minnesota get by? How does Alaska get by? How does Colorado get by? All of these other states that have massive amounts of snowfall, just like Maine does, do just fine without it. And they're not, you know, bursting at the seams with motor vehicle accidents and deaths caused by tires falling off and brakes failing and all this other stuff. People are responsible. They use their cars every day. And most people I know, if your check engine light comes on or your brakes brakes start squealing, you're gonna go get it checked out because you don't want to die. And yeah, I, I think you I you
0: have the primary interest in making sure that right. your car doesn't explode going down 95.
1: And, and, and I don't I don't think you know the government really needs to compel people to do that. They're they're responsible, and I think they'll do it on their own.
0: I mean, at, at the very least, and I know you guys have advocated for this in the past. Uh, you could move it to a get your inspection sticker once every two years or three right. years or something like right. that. Right, I it mean, would seem reasonable. A to perfect
1: make. world. Just get rid of the stupid thing. But anything in that direction, whether it's moving to a biennial system – Maybe it's if you buy a brand new car, it doesn't need to be inspected for five years. We should be moving in the opposite direction. And what the state police want to do is create this, you know, creepy electronic surveillance system and they want your fees to go up to pay for it. When, oh, by the way, the state is bursting at the seams with money. They have plenty of money. They could have underwritten this cost all by themselves. But basically, a portion of this fee increase was intended to underwrite uh, the new digitization of the system, which is just mind-boggling when we have so much money, $10.3 billion being spent in the state of Maine right now.
0: So we uh, created a dedicated funding stream to fix roads, bridges, potholes, uh, prevented uh, a new surveillance system designed around ins- vehicle inspection stickers. I know there's a, uh, there was a proposition from uh, Rachel Talbot Ross, the House Speaker, to expand Medicaid to include illegal aliens, which ultimately failed. Um, Are there any other uh, big-time proposals that you think uh, Republicans played a a role in helping, or conservatives played a role in helping to uh, stop from becoming bad law?
1: I would say there was certainly a host of tax increases, as there are every single year. I mean, there was... Uh, you know, proposals to reinstate the the surtax that voters had approved and then was negotiated out of the 2017 budget. So increases to just about every single tax on the books failed. Um, you know, which is great when you live in the state that has like the third highest tax burden in the whole country. Um, so, you know, that was that was good to see. There are some of those that were carried over to the second session. Like we're going to be dealing with uh, like a local option sales tax coming up here in the second session, but um, for the most part, most of those things were, were killed, and I think that shows kind of twofold. They're they're politically unpopular. People, people you know, don't want to do it, but um, there's also kind of a, a revenue angle related to it of, you know, we keep passing supplemental budgets every other year because we have plenty of money, so the argument that you need to tax people more because we don't have enough money really doesn't hold water. Right it's like now, what,
0: what, what do you need to fund that you haven't funded yet? I right. suppose – the Portland area progressives would say, well, welfare for illegal aliens, yeah, uh, welfare regardless of citizenship status, the The Office of New Mainers, new oh, yeah. sorry, the Office of New Americans that will be opened up uh, next year. Uh, there, there was, though, one major tax that did pass yeah. uh, as part of the paid family leave law. Uh, you know, every working Mainer is now going to be 1% poorer because of the payroll tax that was included in that bill.
1: Yeah, it's really unfortunate, you know. There's obviously a lot of differences between campaign season and then when it's time to legislate, and it was really unfortunate, I think, that governor mills decided to go back on that promise that she's really made since the, the beginning of her tenure now let's not kid ourselves there have been other really small tax increases that have happened since she started uh they equalized the tobacco tax a few years ago for for other products up to cigarette and cigar prices. which is a
0: regressive tax by the way yeah. disproportionately harms the poor so
1: so the idea that we haven't raised taxes under governor mills tenure is is, is not true to begin with but this is the, the the single biggest tax on workers that we've seen in a really long Time here in the state of Maine, so they're going to fund this new paid leave program, one percent tax. It's split by the employer and the employee, and so but, you're,
0: I mean, let's let's be honest. <laughs> right. The the employer pays no pays nothing of that tax. It might on paper that might be the right. case, but the but the point the point five percent comes out of the money that they allocate to have an employee and could be the, the employees' wages.
1: So so this is, you know, ultimately, as I mentioned, the, the biggest tax on workers in a really long time here in the state of Maine. Mills went back on her word and, and approved it. And what really stood out to me about how this whole thing went down, Steve, was the fact that she was like, I'm a realist, and, you know, they had a, a pending ballot initiative that was hanging over their head. And she doesn't think, as the the top Democrat in the state in a Democratic-led legislature with a state that probably leans a little more blue than red, that your voice can't have an impact on the upcoming yeah, there was zero
0: zero attempt so, to to lead
1: so she just she really just kind of used it as a scapegoat of like, well, we have to do this because if we don't, then we'll get we, this, we've got a then. gun to our head, right the,
0: the Portland area socialists have put a gun to our head, and if we don't do exactly what they want, well then they might do what they want.
1: <laughs> right. And and you know, even though it might not be a popular thing with voters, the other reality is, okay, so it passes at the ballot box. Well, the same thing happened with the 3% surtax 6 years ago, yeah. however long ago it was, and they got rid of it immediately after. We're we're not bound like Portland is where in Portland if if a if a city uh referendum passes, they can't change it for 5 years. Well, that doesn't exist at the state level. So play a game of chicken with them, and if you lose, then you run the legislature. If you don't like the thing, get rid of it. So so stop pretending that, like, you're between a rock and a hard place, and this is the only thing that we can do is sign this really bad bill into law because it's just false. It's patently false.
0: And I will say, I think Republicans were a little late to the paid family leave debate in terms of formulating their alternative policy, but there did seem to be some coalescing around the idea of doing what New Hampshire did, yeah. which was a voluntary program, didn't involve an increase in taxes, um, provided very similar benefits. And uh, you haven't really seen progressives in New Hampshire crowing about the need to come back and do something more expansive. Right. They really dealt with the concern. And in the governor's office initial testimony on this bill, she specific her aide specifically said, why don't we look at what New Hampshire's doing? And Republicans were interested in that. The governor was interested in that. But for some reason, they were never able to come together and formulate something that uh, wouldn't result in a, in a huge, heavy, punitive tax increase. And also another element of this is it's like Nancy Pelosi with Obamacare. you got to pass it to find out what's in it. There's, yeah. there's so many uh, places in this new law that say – well, the Department of Labor is going to figure this aspect out. Um, The contractor that the Department of Labor is going to, they're going to figure this out. Um, Or the Department of Labor is going to figure out the terms and conditions and what exactly the contractor we hire is going to figure out. So there's this big gray area of what exactly this law is going to look like, but it's higher taxes, more government, more government bureaucracy. And then I'd be interested to get your position on this. Um, Seems like it's something that's wildly ripe for abuse. Yeah. You know, it's the, the, the reasons why you can take 12 weeks of paid leave are very broad.
1: Yeah, it's really expansive. What I would say, backing up just a little bit, the New Hampshire model is, you know, far and away preferable to, to what we just enacted. The, the only, like, you know, real posturing I saw related to conservatives in the legislature, I did see uh, Senator Trey Stewart write an op-ed in the Bangor Daily News where he kind of pitched the New Hampshire model – and it was interesting that, that that the Mills administration had somebody who was like, hey, let's look at this instead, and they didn't you know, ultimately follow through on it. I think part of that had to do with the committee process itself. I don't want to get you know too far into the weeds, but basically what happened was there was a massive amendment, like a 14-or-something page amendment to this after the initial public hearing. Uh, one day following that being released, and I don't even know if it was available online. I think it was just available to the committee, uh, and then they held a vote on it. So it's like you have – business groups and other interests who want to know what is going on what is this bill actually aiming to do and they don't even get a fair shot at reviewing the thing before lawmakers and committee are voting on it and so I think that that's you know there's a million problems with the way Maines legislature works that helps highlight some of it um, but the fact that you know ultimately it was passed, Mills does nothing about it. She she kind of you know, hems and haws, yeah. puts
0: on some public theater. Like she doesn't know what she's going to do with it.
1: Right. Um. But, but to your point, absolutely. I, I I too, if I was a business owner, I would be scared to death because it's like, when you know, it, it, it is a is a bad employee, but somebody who I need to run my business and turn a profit and feed my own family and feed my other workers. Um. Are they going to abuse this law in some way? The reality is that. You know, if somebody uses this leave for a covered purpose, basically, um, but they're fibbing and you know not being honest with it, that person has to be rehired after the the period is up. So, and there's
0: no way to, there's no way to vet any of this. Yeah, you know, and you you can say, you know, my best friend is is going through an emotional, uh, uh, traumatic event. I need to take 12 weeks <laughs> off. You know, you could this this law is so broad. You could so long as you've worked for your employee long enough you could 12 weeks before election day come up with an excuse to take paid leave and then get paid to go canvass for democratic candidates
1: yeah i mean yeah you probably could i i don't really know what you know recourse exists on behalf of the i mean it's probably still to be determined as you mentioned related to how many factors of this law are like the Department of Labor will promulgate rules to figure out X, Y, and Z. Well, just just imagine
0: how how well we investigate um, unemployment uh, benefit abuse. Yeah. you know, there's no system in place to see if someone's actually. Uh, showing up for the jobs that they claim they 're showing up for, and we knew we heard in the legislative session that there 's a tremendous amount of ghosting going on where people are just filling out their work search requirements to pretend like they are looking for a job to keep their benefits. Welfare fraud we know is a is a problem, and there 's not really welfare fraud investigations happening or Medicaid provider uh, fraud investigations happening so that yeah, was I, I see no reason to believe that the program integrity. Is right. going to be better with this.
1: There, there, there's so many issues within uh the Dol, and it was really on full display during the pandemic too, when all the rules were were expanded and yeah. el- eligibility was, you know, basically anybody with a pulse.
0: I- except if you were a healthcare worker who declined to take the vaccine.
1: <laughs> right. Anybody,
0: anybody could get unemployment benefits during the pandemic.
1: And now, unless
0: you were a healthcare worker who declined the vaccine right. and was fired as a result. And, it and
1: now it's hilarious what those hospitals are doing, trying trying to bring them back on boards and and and. Uh, you know, writing letters saying, pretty pleased with sugar on top, come yeah. back to us, because, you know, the 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 media loved to downplay how impactful that was. Um, you know, they said, oh, you know, it was only such a small share, and it was only like between 500 and 1,000 workers. I don't care if it was 15 workers. If you look at, you know, statistics related look to at the, just look at healthcare the charts. shortages in Maine, Basically, every single healthcare profession, we have a shortage of them. Within the next 10 years, like 33% of them will be retired because we're such an old state. So... The idea they'll that be
0: retired and in need of more health care <laughs> right. so at the same time the number of health care providers and nursing home providers is plummeting the, the demand for those services is going up
1: right it's, it's really, not a, it's not a good mix no, it's, <laughs> not, it's really it's really asinine when you like just take a step back and look at it because I mean like, I was
0: shocked when I when I looked up those just the charts uh, because like the Federal Reserve Bank of st. Louis and the Maine Department of Labor have pretty good in-depth looks at uh, you know the number of people employed in a given sector and if you just look at the, pe- the number of people working at nursing homes in Maine from 2019 to 2022 has fallen off a cliff.
1: Yeah, and 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 on top of that, um, the federal DHHS they put out these maps that show like what areas of a state it's like color coded by profession are are federally designated healthcare shortage areas, and wouldn't you know it, the entire fantastic state of name <laughs> is, 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 like, it doesn't matter what the profession is, if you're talking about doctors, physicians, dentists, surgeons, you name it, um, there's just not enough of them, so the idea that we can afford to lose even one of them yeah. was, was mind-boggling to begin with, but um, you know, the fact that they kept the rule in place for two years and then they finally, like, oh, we're listening to the science. That was yeah, the even, biggest yeah. joke of it all. Was, e- even, was there was no scientific basis whatsoever right. for that policy. From the outset. From the outset, there was no, no. scientific basis. And then to continue the charade two years le- later, Steve, to say, now the science says that we don't need it. It's like people stopped believing you about the science a long time ago. So the fact yeah. that you're 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 still using this term the science as your rationale for everything is just like it 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 hurts to watch at this point in time it actually it's like look away i don't want to see this it's it's
0: it's i've said it once and i'll say it again one of the biggest driving factors in public policy in maine right now is the governor's inability to admit that she was wrong and adjust on the fly yeah because we knew a year and a half ago like it was it was not just like People who read the studies knew and were familiar with how the, they were tested and the fact that transmission was still happening. But I mean, the governor has has contracted COVID twice and she's fully vaccinated and has probably had a dozen boosters. Right. Um, so she should be intimately familiar with the inability of those shots right. to prevent transmission.
1: And I, I I didn't get any of the boosters. I did I did get a round uh, well the full round basically because I traveled internationally in the middle of COVID. Um, but I've also gotten it twice. Yeah, <laughs> you know and I mean,
0: so. The other thing is, she, they they kept the mandate in place, but then when there was an emergency shortage, they allowed vaccinated workers who nonetheless had contracted COVID to come back and work in the hospital yeah. after a period of days, which is like, it was, <laughs> none of it made sense. It was, it none was of it so made sense.
1: irritating to me. And, and I don't know how much of it was led by Nirav Shah versus, you know, just him following on high, what was, what was happening at the federal CDC too, but... Just this idea that natural immunity doesn't exist for COVID, it's just just mind-boggling, you know what I mean? And sure, I got it twice. It's not like just because you had it once you'll never get it again, but it was significantly less the second time for me, and I'm sure it is for most people who have contracted it twice because that's how your immune system works. And the idea that you need to go get... Two shots and then a booster every three months till the day you die after you've already had COVID is just, till the day, till the day it's, it's,
0: you it's, die of myocarditis <laughs> <yeah>. or pericarditis.
1: <laughs> it's just not. It's just not science. It's 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 turning science on its head to fit whatever weird Orwellian world that you're trying to create. And and I'm, I'm glad most of it is behind us now. But I I just hope people don't forget this time. Like we're gonna look back on this so many years from now and be like, what the hell did government try to do to us?
0: I mean, there's a remarkable number of people in this state who voted for Governor Mills reelection because they thought that she handled the pandemic very competently. Uh, And there are already people who are forgetting the abuse of executive power that happened during that time. And I know that uh, as that was happening, MPI uh, did a lot of work on comparing Uh, emergency powers for governors across the country and uh, showing how Maine's Maine's executive powers are different. And now you're seeing, uh, I guess there are some conservatives who are criticizing the governor for not declaring an emergency in relation to the migrant and homelessness and opioid crisis, which is particularly acute in Portland. And I'm thinking to myself, well, guys, do you really want to goad her into right. declaring an emergency? Do you really want to goad her into suspending the legislature and and giving her the potential to run away with executive power like she did during COVID nineteen?
1: I to that I say absolutely not. And and I I hadn't heard that myself. That that is interesting that people say that terrible idea.
0: Well, more more Healy did it in right. in Massachusetts, and then so the Bangor Daily News went to the governor and said, "Are you going to do this?" She said, "No." So some conservatives saw an opportunity to come in and say, She's not declaring an emergency, she's not being authoritarian enough and it's like, guys, how right. short is your memory? Like right, did you right. not
1: do you not remember COVID? So so yeah, basically I mean you declare an emergency and there's also like a context of this you're seeing in other states where governors are declaring an emergency for climate, you know yes. what I mean? It's like yes. if 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 the new if the status quo becomes you can declare an emergency for anything and then just rule by executive fiat. I mean we're in for a world of hurt. Um, but in in the in the context of that, uh, like I said, I I hadn't heard that, but it is funny to me because after you lived through everything that we just lived through. Why would you want one person in charge again? I mean, that was a big part of, of you know, our opposition to. I would say one
0: family in charge. <laughs> yeah. I think the uh, Dora and Janet had probably had equal, equal right. power during that time but, period.
1: But, um, you know, we we have a system of checks and balances for a reason. We elect people to make decisions for us for a reason. That's why the legislature exists. During COVID, there basically was no legislature. They weren't. They weren't. You know, gathering to, you know, sure, they were doing some stuff on Zoom and whatever, but they weren't in session, like, casting votes. They basically said, there's this new thing that we're scared of. Here you go, Governor Mills you know, be our, be our almighty leader forever. It's a survival it,
0: rate of 99.9%, although I get maybe a little bit more lethal for the legislature, which tends to be older and yeah. a, little, a little heavier.
1: Yeah, and, and it's not to say that there you know there's no risks associated with it. It's really dependent on, 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 you know, your other risk factors, how old you are, so on and so forth. But the idea that let janet mills decide what businesses can open and which ones can't
0: and which doctors and, can have licenses yeah, uh, yeah who's who's which which professionals are allowed to go on the radio and criticize her policies to right. you know, dr Merrill mass
1: there's two there's two rules from covid that are just like like i don't know how when people heard this on the news they they weren't like what is going on here like just questioning you know what's happening one of them was uh, restaurants and bars could open If you had like the dual license, but if you were just a bar or a tasting room, you couldn't open. It's like, oh, okay, so I can go into this place and eat food and drink, but I can't go into that place and just drink. Oh, because the food is there? The COVID right. goes away. Right. So so you probably had people who were like, you know, throw some French fries on oh, a fry yeah. later. And they're like, look, look. Absolutely. look boil up a here. little
0: pasta <laughs> and throw a tomato in
1: it. So the other one, Steve, is uh, there was a point in time during like the rural reopening plan or, you know, whatever they, they, they called these stupid things where you were only allowed to golf in your home county unless – you're a member of a golf club in a different county. Then you could go play golf in that county. But it's like, makes okay, I'm outdoors. The sun is shining. The wind is blowing. Thank God I'm in Androscoggin County because if I, if I was over in Kennebec County, I bet you I'd get COVID here.
0: Unless I was a member of a club over there, yeah, in yeah. which case, yeah, no but, COVID. But then
1: I wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, just,
0: it's just uh, it's such a joke. I mean, we could, we could relitigate all the mistakes that were made uh, during COVID forever, but we're in the process of making even greater mistakes some might say in the space of energy policy yeah. and emissions policy in the state of Maine i mean the legislature just totally failed to do anything about the community solar and net energy billing program which is going to be hundreds of millions of dollars out of the pockets of maine ratepayers to, mostly to out of state companies right. we're doing this we're doing this intentionally it's our decision to take millions of dollars away from everyone who uses electricity in the state of maine and give them to out of state developers who, by the way, are going to be buying solar panels made by slaves in western China, and we're doing it because Janet and Democrats think that they can change the weather.
1: Yeah, it, 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 they, they they had a real opportunity. There was a bill, I don't remember the the bill number, but it basically came in response to the Public Advocates op-ed in the, in the Portland Press-Herald. I don't know if you remember seeing it. Like it was Steve it, Foster's, uh, yeah, a Republican yeah, was, from Dexter. I th- yeah, I think it was 1347 was the bill, but basically Bill Harwood writes an op-ed in the Press-Herald saying, hey, look, These subsidies that you're handing out, this whole community solar nonsense, it's equivalent to a $285 per year tax on every ratepayer in the state of Maine. And so obviously it's like, no, rates are through the roof. Lawmakers, you know, how many people elected their lawmaker with the hope that they would go up there and bring those costs down for them? So now you have a proposal that's going to do exactly what voters want because they feel the pressure amid inflation of the last couple of years, do something to reduce their electricity bill. And they poo-poo it, and and they do it at the behest of the solar lobby, which which just completely, as far as I'm concerned, Steve owns the 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 party in power in Augusta.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's some some people could compare it to a criminal enterprise. Um, the way the the original bill was written, which did in 2019 did have Republican sponsors, uh, but the way the bill was written was very clever because rather than take general fund money and pass a $200 million subsidy for solar panels, they did it through net energy billing, which meant that CMP and Versant were going to have to be the tax collectors. So you don't, you can't complain about the, your tax bill. You, you have to complain about these evil uh, utility companies who are jacking up your rates. And it's, it's very slick. The people who are signing up for community solar think that they're saving the environment, but they're not. The, right. Their power, in most cases, isn't actually coming from... Directly from a solar panel, as the illusion uh, seems, and then the the solar companies turn around and sell renewable energy credits mostly to Massachusetts. Yeah. So the, the the fictitious accounting system that we've created under Reggie and the various regional carbon credit trading schemes, according to that, there's no environmental benefit
1: in Maine. The implementation was was you know really clever and kind of tricky because. The consumer, all you care about is like you're looking at your bill, yes. and it's more expensive yeah. than it used like to be. Like how much and money, so, am
0: I am I not going to be able to spend you know, on school supplies? You,
1: you have to actually like follow around in the press, like when you see an article about you know rates are going up, and you have to read the thing to find out why they're actually going up. All the all the average person cares about is my bill is going up. This is more expensive. This is twice as expensive as it was last year, and three times as expensive as it was the year before that. And so you know it, it, it was crafted in a very clever way to to kind of obscure what's really going on here. But nonetheless, they had they did have a chance to do something about it and they ultimately failed. And it, there was it but there was
0: bipartisan support, not not for Foster's bill as it originally came down because that was just to eliminate net energy billing altogether. But uh, I think Sophia Warren, one of the reps from Southern Maine who's a, a far left progressive, big-time believer in climate change and renewable energy, she said it was fundamentally unjust because it disproportionately harmed low-income people.
1: Yeah, and 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 it's good to see that there are some people who are coming around and kind of waking up to the reality that like, hey, if you have these you – know, this is something that, as I mentioned via via what uh, Bill Harwood said in that op-ed, this is something that every single rate payer is paying it, it, to your point of like it being regressive. Like this is spread out amongst all of us. So yeah. if you're a senior on a fixed income, if you're a low-income uh, main or, or, or low-income family, you're really feeling the pinch from this. And so – People want relief, and ultimately, what they did is, I think they the, the the bill that they ended up passing like phases it out like 30 years from now. Or yeah, something it's, like it's that. meaningless. <laughs> it
0: was a total tactical victory for the solar lobby. And if you need any more evidence of that, uh, go go search Google for main community solar. You'll be inundated with ads. These solar companies are are still running ads on social media, Google ads. They're trying to recruit subscribers. They are like full steam ahead. Um, and it was just a, a complete and total victory for them. And uh, Governor Mills signed off on it. Uh, the Democratic lawmakers signed off on it, although there were a few um, who supported the original vision. And, and Harwood came out afterwards and said, yeah, well, we'll have to see. Right. We'll have to see if this does anything to address the concerns that I repeatedly laid out based on math and science. And I think he even said that, like, according to the projections of you know what they what they see in terms of... Obviously, there's a a gold rush for developers to come and take advantage of these subsidies. Uh, The the projected build-out is just more power than we could possibly use in the state of Maine. Right.
1: The the reality is they know, Steve. I mean, as much as I would commend Bill Harwood for all of the public statements he made in opposition to this stuff and how it was – Impacting mainers, they know. They know that the that the law that they passed does absolutely nothing yeah. to to address the issue fundamentally. It's I mean,
0: Hartwood really said as much in right. his public
1: comments. It's not it's not going to reduce rates. We're we're going to continue to feel the upward pressure, and it's really unfortunate if you are one of those mainers on the margins because, unfortunately, the legislature did absolutely nothing in this first session to do anything to to yeah. give you relief.
0: And and keep in mind the reason that we're doing this, the reason that we're taking money away from poor people through their energy bills. Is because Janet and the Democrats think they can change the weather. They think that these solar panels are going to result in a reduction in CO2 emissions that will affect global climate temperatures. Right,
1: and the, the reality—I remember uh, we had somebody. There was a uh, you know a energy guy from Delaware who who did an analysis for us a few years back during the whole transportation climate initiative debate, and they concluded that that. Uh, you know the emissions in Maine must have less than one one hundredth of a percent on global. Yes. <laughs> global it, yeah, it's
0: nothing. And because we have so many forests, we're already climate right. negative. Right. And the other thing is, so this 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 policy is happening at the same time. And I mean, it's common sense that solar panels are only going to be generating electricity during when the sun is shining. There's no right now. There's no feasible storage system for that energy. Uh, They keep saying that there will be at some point. There is not any sort storage system. So this power that we're subsidizing by taxing poor people will not be available at night. Now, if you have an electric vehicle, which we are now trying to make everyone in the state of Maine drive, if you have an electric vehicle. Uh, when are you most likely to plug that in? Oh, at night. So at the same time, we're trying to shift our entire power grid to a power source that is available only during the day. We're also trying to mandate power consumption that happens primarily at night. Make it make sense.
1: It it really doesn't make sense, and and I'm glad you brought that up because the – regulations that are that are being proposed right now the the adoption of these california style electric vehicle mandates they're really what are called ice bands internal combustion engine bands um one would be for passenger vehicles the other one would be for heavy duty trucks and you know there's a lot of issues i don't know how far you want to get into it but but i mean
0: i've read car and driver magazine about the the comparisons that they've done between uh you know like the f-150 ice and the f-150 uh lightning and The expense to the consumer is is big. They they'll say that you're going to reduce money because you're not buying gas. I mean you're going to save money because you're not buying gas. But how many I mean how many uh, auto mechanics in Holton can work on your Tesla? (laughs)
1: Right, probably not many. I've seen that too. You know, the the EV version is like another twenty thousand dollars more expensive, probably. And it is funny to me. Certainly, where electricity rates are right now, there's 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 no way that with the additional cost, the additional you know twenty grand premium, that over the lifetime of the vehicle, it's going to be better for you. You would be far better served by a fuel-efficient gas-powered vehicle. Or hybrid. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because that's one thing that I really don't understand in this whole debate is, like, most people are still on gas-powered vehicles. So why don't you at least open the door or, you know, a hybrid is better than a pure gas-powered vehicle. But that's not part of your equation to get there. You just want everybody to wholesale scrap the old for the new And the reality is there's so many issues that come with the new – I mean in addition to the premium that you're going to pay for, it, you need to go – how many houses have an EV charger in their garage? How many houses even have a garage? So you're going to have to like get this thing installed on the side of your house or whatever. It's going to be thousands of dollars probably to make that happen. But then you have to pay electricity rates – on, on your already, you know, through the roof electricity bill, and you're going to pay an even higher to charge your car. And they're going up night. too. Right. Like the,
0: the, the electricity rates on, on the with our current policies will continue to go up. It's feasible that in the next five to ten years, we're
1: paying forty cents a kilowatt hour. Right.
0: Under under with, with the way the policy trajectory
1: is right now. The reality is that the infrastructure just isn't there. Not only in terms of like being able to go home and charge your vehicle, but let's say you're you're running out of range and you're in you know, driving up north to camp or something. You know what I mean? Where do you go? There are so few of these charging stations that exist. And sure, you can spend money and, and pay for more, so on and so forth down the road. But, like, the idea that starting in 2027, just, what, three, three and a quarter years from now, we're going to, like, flip a switch and we're going to be there and, and everything's going to take care of itself, it's even more problematic when you think about it in the context of the clean trucks rule, Steve, because now you're talking about, Plow trucks and semis yeah. and things that ship goods on our roads. If a, if a semi, if an 18 wheeler that's making a delivery for Walmart, you know, your groceries that you're going to buy tomorrow or something, if, if they run out of range, where do they go and how long does it take them to plug in and charge? Before yeah. they can, you know, deliver their goods to market, this, this has real consequences mm-hmm. in, in the context of the supply chain. Forget about, you know, the inflation that we've dealt with and worker shortages and stuff like that. Somebody just explained to me the rationale of a truck traveling from Huntsville, Alabama, to Portland, Maine, to make a delivery and where they're going to stop along the way. How long is it going to be delayed? How many millions in losses losses are businesses going to incur and then what do consumers pay ultimately what is the sticker price after waiting so long for, for, for yeah. the good to reach them
0: and then when it comes time to recycle the battery what's <laughs> the cost there who's going to be handling yeah. that how much are taxpayers paying for that and and you know i think it it applies to uh, harwood's harwood's original estimate on community solar where he said you know 200 what 280 a year every Mainer was paying um, i think that's a drastic underestimate of the cost to individual Mainers of all of these policies. Because what, like what you consider you know, the, the grocery store that's paying a higher electricity rate to keep produce cool. They're going to increase their costs to recoup that. The company that needs to pay the truck driver the uh, who's now paying higher rates for his truck because of the vehicle rules, the, the, the ice ban, they're going to incorporate those costs into price increases. So it's not just the direct costs that you see in terms of a rate or a a tax or the sticker shock you get when you have to buy an electric vehicle. All of those costs get passed down by businesses to consumers so that they can still make their margins work. So, that I mean, the costs are almost unknowable of all of these energy policies. And again... It's because Janet thinks she can change the weather.
1: It, it is. I, I would say it's <laughs> unquantifiable. In the context of Harwood, I think he was just specifically talking about the the rate the, increases. The, yes. Yeah, the, the rate because because how would late, you actually quantify the costs right. of all of these policies? I think he was talking specifically about the net energy billing and the community yeah. solar stuff. You're right. If you if you if you take it wholesale, if you start talking about the regional greenhouse gas emission, the renewable portfolio standard, and then let's say we enact these advanced clean cars, advanced clean trucks program. It is basically unquantifiable because, you know, how do you, how, how do you tease that out through all levels of the economy to find out for what an, indi- an individual consumer is paying? But to your point about the batteries, I do want to say one – there was actually one other good thing yes. that I can think of yes. that happened this session. And it's that we changed the rules related to uh, Maine's Metallic Mineral Mining Act. There was a giant – I think it's like the biggest known they deposit say, yeah. of lithium in the world that is uh, that was identified in New Remaine a couple of years ago um, – by this family, interestingly enough, whose last name is Freeman. Yeah, and the they, Freemans
0: were sitting on the, top of <laughs> 1.5 billion dollars that yeah, the state of Maine was like, nope, sorry. The,
1: the the funny thing to me about it is their last name was Freeman, but they couldn't they weren't they weren't free to mine the lithium on their the lithium deposit on their own property. Um, we did change those rules. Um, so that should be like in in reality, Steve, a, a, a billion dollar plus boon for the Western Main economy. Once that process actually starts and they start extracting that lithium, um, you know that's a good thing. Uh, all of these mandates are geared towards going electric and doing this stuff. Well, you need a supply chain domestically to make it happen. So the fact that you know the rules were so strict, so stringent that you couldn't even do this, and and now we we've loosened which them up which undermined
0: quickly. the the mandate. We're going to mandate that everyone has to drive electric vehicles, but we're going to prohibit you from mining the substance that comprises the majority of the batteries that power those electric vehicles. There's there's just so many different areas of Maine's energy policy that just are so incoherent and don't make any sense. And there's a lot of people getting very wealthy and it's all driven by this like ideological religious belief that Maine has it within its capacity. We can't, you know, prevent you know drug use and homelessness or anything like that but we can change the weather of the entire planet if only we pay enough if only we're pious enough
1: yeah it, it 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 is crazy to me when you think about like all of their mandates are geared geared towards making you do this thing but all of the you know in this instance it's use an electric vehicle or use something that's battery powered but the rules are such that you can't even go extract the minerals that you need to to build the thing that you want us to use totally you know incoherent I mean? so like we, we, what are we supposed to do? You know, are we supposed to rely on like the the, the blood batteries from Africa and, and the well, that's what that's that basically do? what
0: we're doing. I right. mean, there seems to be zero concern among lawmakers about the fact that solar panels are coming primarily from uh, Chinese factories that use slave labor, right. like uh, Uyghur Muslims being systematically exploited by the Communist Party in China. No concern whatsoever. the, the Department of Transportation. Uh, project in Augusta is a monument to human slavery and they're celebrating it like it's going to be green for Maine and no one seems to care that those solar panels got here via a supply chain with participants who have been condemned by the Biden administration, not by Trump, not by Steve, but by the Biden administration for benefiting from slave labor. And there's just no concern whatsoever. Yeah, for the B- Department of Transportation wouldn't respond to me. Mills wouldn't respond to me. No one... No one seems concerned at all.
1: For people who are allegedly like so concerned about human rights and, and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, it's odd. Yeah, it it's does. odd. They're very it's
0: concerned about the right of a trans person to use whatever bathroom they want, but not concerned at all about the right of a Uyghur Muslim not to face uh, genocide and re- religious persecution.
1: Yeah. bizarre. And in, in, in the context of, of like this lithium discussion as it relates to Maine, um, I know the Inflation Reduction Act uh the the probably the biggest misnomer of all time but it did tie some of those subsidies to the components being built in Maine uh not in Maine in the U, in the US so um you know I don't necessarily want the lithium to be extracted in Maine so people can get that subsidy but the reality is now that there's now they're setting up the rules such that these components do have to be produced in the US and that might also hurt the consumer at the end of the day not that I want you know slave labor to to be Uh, providing the different components that I need for the vehicle. But um, the fact that they use that law as a means of trying to change uh, where these elements are actually sourced, I I think probably gives even more reason to Maine lawmakers to make this change. So I'm just glad that they did it. I didn't want it to go unnoticed that there was another small thing that might actually help Maine's economy in the long run. Yeah, I mean,
0: that's a glaring one, though. You know, you can't talk about electric vehicles if you're going to uh, basically Bogart, the biggest source of lithium that we've found <laughs> right. maybe ever. Um, and it the, would have
1: been it would have been really funny if they said no. And there and there were efforts. There were there was a there was a.
0: Oh, I'm sure the Natural Resources Council of Maine, who supports elect electric vehicles.
1: Um, there was all, a, the, all the green groups. There was a lawmaker in the House who had proposed a bill to that that would like have habitually or forever banned extraction of lithium in Maine. And it's like, why? Like, after this thing... Uh,
0: a bill to make sure you can never stick a shovel in your front yard.
1: How about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't can't dig up anything. But um, I'm, I'm just glad that they did it. You know, there, there there's so few good things that happened this session, so I just wanted to make sure that one didn't go uh, unnoticed.
0: Well, back in the other direction of bad things that happened, I, I think that the wind power port and offshore wind... Uh, experience that maine is about to have thanks to a bill passed one of the last i think of the legislative session i think it's going to make the big dig in boston look like small potatoes mm-hmm. um, and for those who don't know we, we maine has been having this offshore wind debate for 10 years you know governor Baldacci put together an offshore wind commission to investigate this the idea is you know the wind's always blowing in the gulf let's find a way to capitalize on that um, you know sunshine and breezes can power our entire economy and the governor has signed a bill that will uh, make massive investments in building a port, either in Eastport or Searsport, most likely Searsport, that's going to have four terminals that will function as the primary construction headquarters for offshore turbines. So you'll be able to bring in, you know, deep, their deep ports, you'll be able to bring in construction vehicles, load the materials, and they'll go out 20 miles out into the Gulf of Maine and build gigantic football, fi- football field size platforms. float wind turbines on. Uh, The big debate that I saw was between those who wanted a project labor agreement included, which would have uh, meant only unionized labor could build the port and only unionized labor could work on projects in the port afterwards. Um, Maine's big construction companies uh, are all employee-owned. So, they are not unionized, and their employees don't want to unionize because they get a better shake. Why would they want to unionize right. against the company that they are part owner of? Um, the final bill that came down, the AFL-CIO guy, uh, Matt Schlobaum, Schloblom or whatever his name is, called it a home run. Um, so as much as Governor Mills you know, fainted that she was interested in not having a PLA on this, when the top union guy calls it a home run, well, you should probably... Probably believe him.
1: Yeah. What what upset me about this debate, Steve, is that you know the issue was whether or not we should have a PLA for for the offshore wind project versus
0: do it a period. Right.
1: Why, yeah. why like why are we doing this? And it's so funny to me that a couple of years ago they they passed a law, um, you know that Mills touted and said like responsible offshore wind development. And it's like, well, what's what's responsible about it? Because in some way or another, it's going to disrupt the fishery. And that means lobster fishermen. It means, you know, regular fishermen. And I feel like they've been left out of this debate a lot. And I think it's another situation where, as we were talking a moment ago about, you know, protect the environment, uh, but you can't can't mine the minerals that we Mm -hmm. need for these batteries. Well, you have, like, these groups who are all for offshore wind, but they, you know, want lobster rules to change to protect right whales. And now you're going to go construct... Wind turbines. You're going to do something that's a a million
0: times more disruptive to the right whale habitat. And it's not just groups, it's also. Uh, it's the uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, it's the federal government, it's the Biden administration. They're very concerned with protecting the right whale, except for when it comes to constructing these massive floating wind turbines right. out in the Gulf. And,
1: and it's funny how you know, one, one, thing, one thing is bad for the ocean, another thing is good for the ocean, or let's just not focus on the, the consequences or the ramifications of this thing that we like, um, and let's, let's only focus yeah. focus on the negatives of the thing that we don't like, and it's just so selective, and, and it it just doesn't withstand scrutiny at any level, really.
0: And it's also not a policy that is grounded in science as much as, uh, you know, one party likes to beat their chests about being, where's science? The science says this. Uh, the, there's a, a group of uh, fishermen and lobstermen that have uh, come together, and they published last week a, an analysis, like a review of the science that has been done about the impact of offshore wind. And even the scientists, everybody in the industry will admit it's an understudied thing, so we don't really know. Right. There could be unknown, unknowable, unpredictable consequences of doing this. A project of this size has never been attempted in the Gulf of Maine or really anywhere. Uh, but they have found evidence that, uh, the, this is something I hadn't really considered, but the, the cables that will bring electricity from the wind turbines back to shore produce electromagnetic fields. Anytime you have electricity flowing through a cable, it's going to produce an electromagnetic field. There are haddock larvae that use, as they drift through the ocean, they use Earth's magnetic field to navigate, and these cables will interfere with that, uh, and in some cases reduce their ability to swim. It affects their feeding habits, that kind of thing. hasn't been studied well. We know that there's a connection, but if we lay down a cable, not knowing the full consequences of putting, introducing strong electromagnetic fields into the Gulf of Maine, we could totally disrupt the haddock fishery. And that's not just the livelihood of the commercial fishermen. Then you're looking at the global food chain because uh, not only do people eat haddock, but some of these fish products end up in fertilizer that grows crops that people eat. So there's a risk that we destabilize regional and global food chains to build massive floating wind turbines out in the Gulf of Maine because Janet thinks she can change the weather,
1: and it's <laughs> like, well, what are we right. doing? And, and Haddock eat other fish, and other fish eat Haddock. Yes, and, yes. You know, There's also like a a, a food chain uh, issue there. As Population
0: well. scale effects is the one of the words that the researcher used, and that's yeah. that's just the the uh, EM field created by the cable, which also has been shown to cause deformities in lobsters. So none of this none of this has really been reckoned with or studied and then my favorite uh, my favorite piece of science that the fishermen have been touting in their report is that when you put these big objects out in the Gulf of Maine, it has the effect of absorbing more sunlight, and so it it warms the oceans so the the warming of the Gulf of Maine is the reason why we need to put these wind turbines in the Gulf of Maine, which will warm the Gulf of Maine. <laughs>
1: That's funny. I, <laughs> it's like, what are we doing? I, I hadn't, I hadn't heard that, but that is funny. Um, f- for me, Steve, this is just like the, this is like Maine's next energy boondoggle, basically. Yeah. Whether, whether you look at it in the context of, you know, uh, the onshore wind stuff, we're blowing the tops off of of roof of, of mountains to save the planet to you know change the climate, change the weather as you're saying so we're disrupting natural habitats to save the environment and then you know, same thing, same thing with 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 solar. You're like using up, you know, good farmland basically, and and putting these things all over the place. And by the way, it like snows half of the time in, in this state, and they're covered with snow. Oh, right? but that'll create
0: good jobs. We'll have we'll have yeah. unionized people out there scraping Union. the
1: snow off the solar panels. Unionized solar panel shovelers. Yeah, of course, um, of course. Um, and then now you look at this, and it's like you know, this is like where the next round of Subsidies and, and and all this government waste and largesse yeah. is going to go. And they and voted they
0: voted for it without knowing how much it's going to cost.
1: And if and if you think you know the idea that the wind's always blowing out there, and if we do like this, is not going to do anything to change your rates. Like like expanding hydro and Maine would be. It'll or, it'll send them
0: up. Right. It'll it'll increase your rates. I mean they they pret- they pretend and they fudge the science like the power coming from these is going to be affordable. Not the case at all. No. And And we've already seen in Massachusetts like two weeks ago, uh, uh, Avangrid or Iberdola, the same company that owns CMP and would probably be entering into a power purchase agreement to buy the power from the Gulf of Maine, they backed out of a deal off of Massachusetts yeah. because the numbers didn't make sense. They paid several million dollars – I think it was $48 million they paid – in order to get out of the power purchase agreement because they were going to lose money on it because they had to increase rates to make it work for a number of reasons. But if you don't think that that's going to happen in in Maine when this comes to fruition four or five years from now, it's going to be that only at a greater scale.
1: I haven't, I haven't seen a comparison, but I'd be interested to see, like, in terms of all of the development and getting things online in the Gulf of Maine for offshore wind – what would that compare to to like just constructing a small nuclear generator? Oh, they, but we we can't
0: have that conversation. We can't have that conversation. Yeah. Jer- Jerry Runty, he's the he's the energy expert in the uh, uh, in the legislature and he used to work at a nuclear power plant and he opined in the Portland Press Is Herald that, the, that nuclear's nuclear's not uh, uh, not not just not feasible. It's not cost effective. Do you know how much it t- costs to get through the government permitting process?
1: Millions, but, there's, but there's, there's no
0: there's no thought paid whatsoever to well maybe we fix that right like right. that it is within our power to expedite a government permitting process right like that's a very easy process
1: and I don't I don't know how you feel about it Steve but for me it's like I don't really care you know if you want solar power have solar power if you want windmills have oh in windmills. your backyard yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, even if it was not so much state policy, but like if somebody wants to build a generating system, go for it. What I don't like is the favoritism and the the cronyism that that is just run amok. But if you didn't have that,
0: you wouldn't have solar and you wouldn't have wind. They wouldn't exist. They wouldn't be cost effective. And if if the wind industry and the solar industry, who are very powerful uh, with a certain party in the state – if they were to permit nuclear to come in, there's no rational, economic, or scientific basis whatsoever for those industries because it's it's clean, renewable power, and it's much more cost effective. It's stable; it, it, That's not going to change with the weather. And I th- if you look at it, it's safe as well. Like it, people in, in America have not been dying from nuclear nuclear accidents. And, right, that, and the that, storage that. problem is it's very the amount of. Uh, the amount of space that you're going to need to deal with nuclear power, uh, nuclear waste pales in comparison to solar panels when they expire, to wind turbines right. when they have to be decommissioned. But there's no concern whatsoever about what are we going to do with these wind turbines that are going to rot from in the, in the sea breeze out in the Gulf of Maine? Right. They're just they're just going to sink out in the Gulf of Maine and, and leach heavy metals into the water, and we'll the, deal with that
1: in a few years. The nuclear technology has changed so much in the last couple of decades, certainly since Maine Yankee was last online. And, and I think that you could, all the money that's being spent on, you know, the solar arrays and the onshore and offshore wind, you could, you could probably take all of that money and put it into like one small nuclear generating facility. And it would probably create like probably 10 times more than all of those, you know, individual projects. And a thousand,
0: and, and like a thousand good jobs. Right. And it would stabilize the grid. Would, I mean, they, well, I think what they don't understand is that the, the intermittent power sources need fossil fuels or nuclear in order to function, right. because the storage systems aren't there right, right now. That right now the the best storage system to take advantage of solar and wind when they're overproducing at peak load is to pump water up into a tower, like that's the, like a, a water-based battery is our best solution right now, and they keep uh, uh, diluting themselves into thinking that. Right around the corner, we're going to have these massive batteries that are perfectly efficient. Right. It's just – it's the technology's and, not there. And,
1: and when the sun's not shining at night, I don't think the four turbines in the Gulf of Maine are going to keep everybody's EV charged. <laughs>
0: no, I don't, I don't think so. Not to mention – I mean, we, we've also – they've been pushing what the Mills administration calls uh, beneficial electric electrification. This is Hannah Pingry written all over it. <laughs> uh, so we're trying to get everyone to use heat pumps – because, you know, heat pump this, heat pump that. We need electricity. Pay no attention to the fact that most of our electricity is being produced by natural gas, so the heat pumps are still powered by natural gas. But with the heat pumps, with the EVs, with everything under the umbrella of beneficial electrification, we're massively increasing demand on our power grid. Right. At the same time, we're making it less reliable through wind and solar. And that doesn't even start to get into the fact that the Portland area socialists want to uh, have the uh, utility companies seized forcefully
1: right, and
0: yeah. run run by state government.
1: That's that's, that's, <laughs> that's an issue in and of itself, but but you're right. I mean, you're you're trying to change the mix with these intermittent sources that aren't constantly producing electricity and at the same time you're telling people go use electricity 24/7. I mean, you know, you already have it powering your home. To think that you're going, everybody, all 1.3 million of us are going to have a car plugged in at night when we're when we're mixing or changing the mix of our energy reliance to these intermittent sources. It's just like somebody explain to me how this works. Somebody explain to me how. You know what? Are, 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 are we looking at like ten years from now? You're gonna have like a fifteen hundred dollars a month electricity bill because that's what it seems like. That's honestly yeah. what it seems. Yeah, I like. mean that
0: that's the trajectory we're on. Uh, and, and I'd like somebody to explain how this isn't just old fashioned communism, <laughs> like just like a command and control economy. You know, there's there's really, really smart people in the governor's office who know what's best for us, and they know how to centrally plan the entire economy. And they're doing it for high-minded goals of equality and saving the environment, and we should all just be grateful that we have such smart people looking yeah. out for
1: our interests. The, funny, the funniest thing to me about, you know, all of this posturing that happens is the environmental groups say that... Uh, Low income populations are those most susceptible to climate change. Yeah. And so they call yeah. this environmental justice. And yeah. it's like, well, I don't think, you know, forcing a, a, a family that earns, you know, sixty thousand dollars combined to go buy a forty thousand dollar vehicle when they could go buy a used seventy five hundred dollar gas powered vehicle. That doesn't sound like justice to me. No. <laughs> it's,
0: it's, no. Just go drive around Portland. There's environmental justice uh, yeah. uh all over in the bread lines, uh you know, in the in the Millsvilles that are popping up uh, <laughs> uh, at on Marginal Way and Four yeah. River. Uh, yeah, uh does it. You know, I, I know that there were uh some some glimmers of hope during the legislative session. Or I shouldn't say hope, but um some maybe uh lessened despair. But uh, it seems like the legislative session on, it, on the whole was uh, not good for people who are interested in, in freedom, free markets, um, prosperous business, attracting businesses here, attracting young families here. Uh, it seems like a, uh, we took a, a step backward in, in all of those spaces.
1: Yeah, I mean, whether it's whether it's tax stuff, individual freedom stuff, I mean, all around the, the plan seems to be pick something. Subsidize it to make it competitive, and you know, make the rate or make the consumers or make all Mainers generally pick up the tab. If you look at any issue area, um, it seems like that's kind of the path that we're going down: tax and spend, um, subsidize things that we like, uh, try and prohibit you from doing things that we don't like. Um, it really wasn't, it really wasn't, you know, by by any means a, a shining example of what Maine should or could be. And it's interesting, you know, whether you're talking about taxes or emergency powers or any of these things that we've talked about, like, just go like 20 miles that way and you're in New Hampshire where everything is the exact yeah. opposite and they're far more competitive and they have more young people and they have more big businesses and, and, you know, they do just fine without all of these taxes and all of these requirements and all of these mandates and all of the freedom that they have over there that, that, that we don't have. And I think that gets lost on lawmakers quite a bit. Um That like, hey, you know, we're competing with everybody, and we're the only state that shares a border with one one other state. And we're locked up into this corner with a state that is a polar opposite of us and exceeds us in just about every measurable, noteworthy statistic.
0: Maine has coasted for a very long time on its natural beauty and its size and remoteness, you know, that is what attracts people is the the coastline and the ability to find a small town and a big chunk of land to move into. But I think we're rapidly approaching a time, especially after the influx of, you know, wealthy old white people buying up places, you know, moving from New York City or Boston uh, during COVID. uh, You know, I think we're rapidly approaching a a time when that won't make sense. And, you know, I know the governor has come out with her Um, office of new Americans in a plan to uh, get 75,000 new workers. And I know it's not explicitly um, poor homeless, jobless migrants that she wants to populate that 75,000. But um, how, how like, how is she going to convince workers to move from Texas or Tennessee or New Hampshire or Florida or even California to Maine when there's no housing, like no, no, no housing at all. Um, The schools aren't that great. Social services really aren't that great. Uh, You know, what incentive is there for somebody to come here and pay higher taxes for inferior government services when, you know, they're probably going to end up with a house in like Dexter or something. They can find one at all.
1: there, There really isn't a good reason to come here, especially when, you know, let's say you're migrating up from Texas to Maine. As I just mentioned before, why wouldn't I work? in new hampshire and keep all of the money that i earn. that sounds yeah. like a, that sounds like a much better deal at the end of the day actually
0: you know what i should say there was a family that moved from texas to uh to maine recently they moved there was a young couple that moved from texas to westbrook uh and about a month ago they were gunned down in a random act of violence by uh, an individual who told the officials at long creek correctional that uh, he wanted to go to a mass shooting but he was released anyways so there is some evidence of migration from uh, states like texas to maine and anecdotal i know
1: yeah well what i would say is you know generally speaking for people who have legitimate claims to asylum i would love for them to be able to work immediately i think the rules are are dumb the way that they're set up now we need workers but as you just mentioned a moment ago it's like there are so many other things supports that are needed to get us there and it's like the fact is they're all crowded around portland the greater southern maine area where there is very little housing so so it's like yes I understand we need to do something for our, our economy you know there's there's worker shortages the labor participation rate in this state is, is is horrendous but at the same time it's like you can't you can't bring them in really before we're ready or before they have like a place to live or you know what I mean so it just seems like there's, there's, there's a rush. It's almost, I guess, kind of like the the EV thing, where it's like, well, we need this thing, and we're gonna mandate and make it happen and bring bring the people in. And it's like, well, we don't we don't really have the ability to support them. Uh, we don't we don't have the ability to house them. We don't have the ability to do all of these things. Yet, despite that, which I think is probably pretty clear to everybody, open the doors, open the floodgates, we'll, we'll, let yeah. it happen anyway. Just bring them in.
0: We're, we're testing the proposition of whether a a Unlimited welfare state can survive with open borders. Yeah. And I think history has shown that that's not the case. We're going to give it another run thanks to Ethan Strimling and Governor Mills. We're going to test it again just to see if it, it works this time. But I think the lack of housing and the lack of support resources, we talked earlier, the lack of healthcare infrastructure, uh, I think shows that there are other impediments to inter- workforce integration for uh, migrants. The, the, the six-month waiting period in federal law, I mean, sure, go ahead and repeal it. It's not going to change anything. It's not not change anything. It could, Yeah, not Im- I mean, it, uh, over the long term, it might provide more of a lure for people to come to Maine to work. But, uh, you know, it's not – you know, most of, the majority of the migrants who are here have been here longer than six months. Therefore, they can work. They can go get a work authorization. They can get a uh, social security number. If they were the silver bullet that was going to turn around the workforce sh- shortage, we'd know by now. Um, and then w- another thing that I hear about migrants filling the, the workforce gap is, um, well, you know, we could bring them up to Millinocket. There's some mill infrastructure there, mass timber product products. There's some kind of a need there. It's like, okay, well, how many Lingala translators are available in right. Millinocket? How many how many French and well, probably a lot of French, but <laughs> Portuguese speakers are are moving to Millinocket and willing to integrate in a school. Um, how many are, are going to be working in the, e, the, the to train EMTs? so there are some significant cultural and langu- language based issues which need to be overcome and aren't really being taken into consideration because it's not as easy as saying like let's just, let's just take every single migrant who's in the uh, expo right now and put them on a bus, bring them up to Millinocket, and boom, workers, done, Thriving mass timber industry. Right. It's not, It's just not that simple. But for somebody who's in Augusta, you know, trying to centrally plan the economy, it's like, oh, we've got all these migrants. Why don't we just, you know, put them into work in a very profitable, high-tech sector? Right. Like, the, oh, the, there's, some, there's some steps in between that we haven't really considered. Right.
1: The problem, is, the problem is they are treating it as if it's a silver bullet when in reality, you know, th- this population is really just a piece of the puzzle. As we were talking about a moment ago, how do you get people here? Well, you get people here when when you know Maine has plenty from a natural resources and beauty and and sure people love all that stuff, but when you're going to pay a 7.15 percent income tax or an 8.93 corporate tax rate, when you're going to pay a really high sales tax, when you're going to pay high property taxes on the, the home that you eventually buy and try to live in, it's like. How many, a great example, and, and, you know, this is, I guess, again, just an anecdote, but you see it all the time in professional sports from players who are like, I don't want to go play for the New York Jets. I'd rather go pay, play for the Miami Dolphins or the Tampa Bay Buccaneers yeah. or, or the Jacksonville Jaguars because there's zero state income tax there. And for people who think that, you know, people who want to earn a lot of money, who want to start businesses, don't think about that, don't factor that in. I mean, changing Maine's tax rates. And making it easier to start a business here would do so much more for our economy, bringing workers here, bringing families here, making – you know, and turning the tide on the demographic winter than opening up an office of new mainers or whatever it's called now. I mean yeah. – and, and that's not to say that they shouldn't be included or that they're not part of the solution. I think they are. There's obviously, as you mentioned, a lot more that needs to be done to, to – you know, can they speak English and communicate with people? And so, there, there's so much more that – that comes with that, it's part of the problem. I mean, it's part of the solution. It's not the silver bullet. The silver bullet is make Maine a competitive place to live and, and run a business and start a business and a place where people want to live.
0: I mean, I think the it boils down to a disagreement over human nature, this question of, of would lower taxes and attract people to Maine. And on one side, there's people who say that uh, tax rates don't affect where you want to live and where you migrate to that people don't want to keep more of their stuff. And on the other side is people who say, well, no, it turns out people like to keep their stuff and they like to keep their property and they'll, they'll move and make, they'll move and make decisions, important decisions according to what allows them to keep more of their stuff.
1: Right. And that's why when you look at, uh, migration rates of, of us citizens, it's like every single year, it's like, what are the three jurisdictions that are being fled the most? New York, Chicago, or Illinois and California, and where are they going? They're going to Texas, the Southeast, yeah, Texas, Sometimes and Southeast. Sometimes it's East. like a Idaho or a Wyoming or one of those other states that have yeah. very little, if any, taxes whatsoever. And I, so. I know
0: we should address in that conversation that um, I think there was some. There's been some reporting about the net in migration into Maine that's been seen since the government lockdowns, and from what I've seen, we're primarily looking at older white people, wealthier. Yeah, we're not looking at um, you know young people coming here to start families so while it's we certainly want the um, the older white people here buying up houses and driving our housing insecurity problem but hey they pay taxes and the government needs those taxes to spend on housing shortage um, you need young families you know that's uh, that's what would turn things around is yeah. young vibrant families who build build culture and uh, uh, attract their friends to to come to the state of maine to enjoy the benefits um, but there's a a uh, series of public policies that I think are standing in the way. Yeah,
1: my understanding is, you know, a lot of those people are people from New York, people from Massachusetts, maybe like Rhode Island or Connecticut who came up. The problem, Steve, you know, net ingri- in migration is a good thing any way you look at it. The problem is, is it sustainable? Is yeah. it is it going to continue or was, was it a one
0: off because of the pandemic, right, or are we right. seeing a new trend here? Exactly. Yeah.
1: I don't think we're like on the verge of of seeing a new trend. I think it was, you know, something that happened during the during the pandemic because. People were scared. They had money. They live in these big populous cities, these huge population centers, and they want to go up to Maine. And unfortunately, it seems like we've resigned ourselves to like this idea that, um, you know, people who are job creators can only come visit for you know a couple of weeks in the summertime. Yeah, or, of, like, or five months know? and twenty-nine days. Right, right, right. Uh, exactly. You know, the 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 proportion of six-month and a dayers in Florida is much higher than, than, than that in Maine, and and so. How do we get those people to stay here year-round? That's the question that policymakers should be asking themselves. How do we keep their wealth here? How do we keep their taxes here in perpetuity instead of exporting it somewhere else? Um, and unfortunately, that's not what they're talking about. They're talking about you know, freebies for everybody and more taxes on the rich, and it, it, it's everything in the opposite direction of what would you know, make Maine's economy vibrant and make it a worthwhile place to, to, to live from an economic standpoint.
0: So I guess as we wrap this up, is there any reason to be hopeful as, as someone who observes the political process here closely and has for a long time? Um, is there any reason uh, looking around Augusta, reading the tea leaves of, uh, you know, upcoming legislative elections? Uh, is there is there reason to be optimistic uh, that the, a trajectory change could be? Coming at some point, maybe.
1: It's it's tough to tell. I'll say, me personally, no, I'm not terribly hopeful, and I (laughs) I I hate I hate to give people uh you know to to be the bearer of bad news. Anything can change within an election, you know, as we know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what happened in 2010. I think that will happen again one day, where conservatives or or you know more freedom minded people are in charge of the legislature. Um then i think you will see a lot of what we're talking about i think you'll see the the tax structures change and the regulations change and you know you might get emergency power changes and stuff like that as we were chatting about but um you know immediately the immediate future we're we're about to see another second session where governor mills and and um the majority party or party are probably going to run roughshod over conservatives and um, you know, things can change in no- November of 2024. It remains to be seen. But what I can tell you is that if that change does happen, I mean, we are bursting at the seams with public policies to, to enact when that day comes. I mean, whether whether you're talking about rolling back these subsidies, stopping these EV mandates, uh, reforming the tax code, um, reducing regulations, that, that's what I look forward to. That's what that's why I do what I do, Steve.
0: All right. Well, that's a good place to leave it. Uh, Jake Posick from the Maine Policy Institute. Thank you very much. Thanks, Steve.